0: Welcome to Zeimer Guys. Ahoy, hoy! We are Bob and Lowry, and we're here to talk to you about some of the stranger stories of beer and fermentation throughout history. Mm-hmm. You can find us on all of your favourite podcasting platforms and most of the good and bad social media. All bad, all bad. At Zeimer Pod, this is a very special episode: the blacklist.
1: Uh, since this episode is going out on the week of St. Patrick's Day, we actually thought to make this extremely very special and we tracked down a real-life Irishman.
0: Yes, it's our uh, it's our good friend, Tim, the master brewer of Sorry Brewing here in Tallinn, who has been uh, waiting quite some time to uh, sit down with us and, and have a good chat.
1: Not only is Tim an extremely gifted brewer he's also one of our best friends and uh, one of your dearest former colleagues isn't he
0: <laughs> they're all my dearest former colleagues oh, ah, but let's be honest tim especially the colleague. dearest former colleague yes tim did work with me at sorry brewing he continues to work at sorry brewing as i have moved on to Polar. and who better to tell us about guinness on the week of saint patrick's day how are you tim i'm fine how are you very well. It is, it is great to finally have you in the room with us doing what we normally do at the pub on Friday night.
1: We do this like three times a week anyway. And, and uh, actually, let's be honest, Tim and like our, the three, some of us, our conversations were the impetus of us actually getting to the point of starting to do this. Sitting,
0: sitting down and recording stuff. And uh, certainly, Tim, you and I have talked a lot in the past about the blacklist and Guinness's uh, involvement in it, and it is something that's relatively close to you personally.
2: Yeah, although uh, I have done a little bit of research, so Rob won't have heard everything I'd oh, say good. this time. That's new,
1: because uh, usually we've heard your stories a few times. <laughs> Oh,
2: I mean, surprisingly difficult to research. Uh, most of this is still kind of my stories. The, the bits of what I would have wanted to research are kind of too scattered. Uh, mm-hmm. There's not, you know, one book about exactly what I was hoping for. So <laughs> read several different books and got like two and a half useful lines in each one, maybe. <laughs> well,
1: I mean, you came well prepared, much better than yeah, we that's, usually that's, do, that's, that's I would fantastic.
0: say. At least it's not mostly <laughs> Wikipedia based.
1: That's I mean, possible. bits of it still are. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it is the world's encyclopedia. So let's let's not disparage Wikipedia, Wikipedia too much. Yeah. Let's talk shit about Twitter instead, or Guinness, or Guinness. Uh, which then, so yeah, the
2: topic I have is basically all of Guinness, but focusing more on kind of the social bits of Guinness, and I kind of ended up with also a why Guinness is so associated with Ireland, because there's a lot of reasons it's very British, actually. Uh-huh. uh But what do you want to start with? Uh, I figured I'd start, like, the initial founding of Guinness, which is where
1: it start is from the start, very the, the British. The national pulse of Guinness. Do we get the answer why it's super British, right, the, in the uh, founding phase? The, the start is more or less why it is super
2: British. Okay. Um, so it starts with the... Arthur Guinness, uh, born in the 1720s in Selbridge in County Kildare to the northwest of Dublin. Mm-hmm. Um, they're Protestants. Uh, they're, it's during an era that in Ireland is called the Ascendancy. So there's what's called the, the penal laws, which mean, for example, Catholics can't vote. Uh, Catholics can't hold land above a certain size. Catholics can't own horses more worth more than five pounds.
1: Um, If there's ever been a law I agree with, it's that one.
2: Catholics
0: can't own horses more than five pounds. Yeah. So does five pounds get you a decent horse? Not good enough for military use is the point of the law.
2: Catholics shouldn't have have
1: horses that could be used for military purposes. If I ever run for office, this is the platform I'm running on. Um, but So he's what
2: we would call an ascend- ascendancy Protestant. So they're kind of from an Irish background ethnically, um, but they have at some point prior to when we know about the family converted to Protestantism, um, often as a way around the penal laws. Another one of the penal laws that caused a lot of people to convert was um, the way land succession worked, mm-hmm. was that... Uh, for Catholics they still applied what was called gavelkind land succession meaning split equally along, among all the sons and for Protestants the oldest son gets the most of it and the rest share out up to the last third meaning that uh, when a Catholic in a Catholic family died there's a lot of incentive for one of the sons to for the, one of the sons to be the first to become Protestant and inherit everything ahead of all his brothers
0: how much land do the Catholics have at this things? This seems uh, like a real noble kind of problem, less than a so issue.
2: This is in the early 1700s. Until the 1600s, the, uh, the Gaelic aristocracy was still around, and so they weren't entirely displaced. So the idea was that this would break down the uh, land of the Gaelic aristocrats in the north and the west much quicker. Uh, since each generation, right, and just favoured the of the, 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 powerful urns the, of the north into minor lords. Yeah, mm-hmm. um, the Guinness family themselves not from a uh, noble background; uh, they're sort of middle class Protestants. Um, both Arthur and his father Richard are employed by a Church of Ireland, Church of England, Anglican Church, a vicar called Arthur Price, which uh, Arthur, Guinness, who Arthur Guinness is named after. And uh, when he dies, he leaves them each uh, £100, which is where the money for Guinness came from. Um, okay. In today's money,
1: that's about £8,000.
2: Um, okay.
1: <laughs> I mean, I, I I could build myself a pretty kick-ass homebrew kit for the money, but uh, I don't think I could start a brewery for eight. pounds um, I mean, mean his quid. yearly
2: rent started at uh, £45. Okay, well. Yeah, okay. Um, but... Uh, They inherit that, and at the same time uh, his father's first wife has died, marries his second wife, and Arthur then moves to work in the pub belonging to the second wife, which she inherited from her first husband, and that's where he begins brewing. Do we know what the pub is called? Uh, I think it's the White, Art, White Hart Inn in uh, Selbridge.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: Um, no longer there. There is, I think, a church on top of oh, it today. Oh, that's date. a shame. Um, always <laughs> the church? That
0: was, that was the next question. Can we go there?
2: <laughs> so uh, within three years, he opens his own brewery, still in Kildare, uh, further up the River Liffey, which flows down into Dublin. And then uh, after four years of operating his brewery there is when he moves to Dublin to the St. James's Gate site. Um which he's partly able to do because the Seven Years' War has created a property crash in Dublin since uh, British exports, their colonies, go down. So land becomes a lot cheaper, and he moves into the St. James's Gate area. Sort of a housing al- bubble. Yeah. Uh, you, which you are you've already been to St.
0: James's Gate, right, Larry? No, I no, have not. No use using, uh, asking Tim. I assume you've been to the St. James's Gate Brewery. I have not. Never you been haven't?
1: to, never been you to haven't, Ireland, you, never been to any of the British Isles.
0: I thought you went to... Didn't you go to Dublin?
1: I was supposed to, but I oh, had my broken ribs and okay, couldn't right. fly, so... <laughs> right. mm-hmm. well, well,
0: then, you're no good to this conversation. Please, Tim, continue. Yeah, but, please uh, do. Go
2: ahead. Uh, Spotty Takes Over has had two or three other breweries in the previous 100 years. Um, all of them have kind of gone bankrupt. So two owned the site and ran breweries there. When the second site owner's brewery ran bankrupt, they leased it to a third uh, person who rented it to put their brewery in. And uh, Arthur buys up the whole lease there
1: and starts an Ailbury no porters. Uh, hmm. That's like, you know, everyone in the Estonian craft beer scene rebelling against like the lagers and the boring beers. and
0: By making IPAs.
1: And, and started making IPAs and Newing imperial stouts. IPAs. And in now checks. everyone is chasing the lager dollar.
0: Is it, is it the Guinness brewery we know at this point? Uh, like- so
2: at the time, I think it was a four-acre site. It has gone up to 400 acres in the mm. intervening mm. period. Um, did, did he already have the thousand-year lease at that point Uh, yeah so that was his initial lease was a one hundred pound down payment and then a forty five pound yearly payment for the next nine thousand years including water rights which (sighs) is about to pop up okay okay um Anyway, uh, part of the reason for that is, in fact, the the reason the area had so many breweries before that already is the water rights issue. Um, So Guinness and all the other breweries and all the drinking water in Dublin were coming from a a very small river called the River Puddle, which is partly canalized by this point and which is fed from another river. I can't get over it. Did you say Puddle? Puddle. Puddle. Yeah. Ah, the Irish. And it was too small, so they uh, it was had a, a nearby river called the uh, Dodder, um, uh-huh. which was the uh, and the partially diverted. It sounds like a bedwetting issue. But uh, anyway, the reason he starts brewing Porter is because uh, at the time that he started brewing uh in addition to the penal laws, there are also some uh, punishment taxes going on from the previous rebellions, mm-hmm. uh, which make it more or less impossible to export beer from uh, Ireland to England, and which often make it more expensive for pubs in Dublin to buy beer brewed in Dublin than to import it from England. Uh, so is this now
0: regardless of Catholic or Protestant status? Just yeah. the, the Irish are just getting punished.
2: Yeah. Uh, so, at the time, uh, if I remember right, it's uh, about two shillings a barrel of excise on beer brewed in Dublin, and two pence of excise on beer brewed in England. Right, so that's, huge. It, that that's is, huge. I forget exactly how the shilling works into the... I mean, there used to be 240 that was like pence. pence. Is that... Whoa, okay. It's so much. Uh, I don't know if that's in a shilling or a pound, and sovereigns and guineas and all that. The yeah, yeah, nice. money is weird. Um, Anyway, uh, bottom of uh, it is,
1: it's a shit ton.
2: Yeah, and so Dublin pubs are using more and more London porter, um, which has cropped up relatively recently as a style in the last 50 to 100 years before he starts brewing it. And uh, originally may well not even have been a beer style so much as a, a mix of nearly kind of a black flavoring,
1: into a lighter beer. Okay, I I, I just wanted to like uh, ask one quick question because uh, in the latest episode uh, we had the issue of uh, you know the uh, pale malts first coming around after that we started using like cocks for uh, malting etc. Is this already post pale malt? Not really. Um, so.
2: The pale malt then, I think, was closer to kind of an amberish malt well, today. still so much you had paler uneven than everything caramelization else. throughout all malt. Mm-hmm. Um, so but at least uh, it wasn't smoky and burned. No, no, but a pale ale is very much uh, a dark and much paler than... Sorry, much darker than... I mean,
1: it's certainly not the Viking Zero of today, <laughs> yeah. you know. No, no. <laughs>
2: um... And in fact, uh, where the porters are using black malt or brown malt in large proportions, once Guinness evolves from the the London-style porter into an Irish stout, it moves to uh, roast barley, so not mm-hmm. a malt at all. Um, and in some cases, it's not clear for Guinness, but uh, in a lot of cases for Irish stout, hops were left out altogether because of the import duties on them. Hmm. Uh, so the roast barley was a replacement for hop bittering
1: okay so there's no
0: no hops endemic to Ireland it's all from Uh, mainland
2: there seems to have been some hop growing in the middle ages Hmm. uh, before the dissolution of the monasteries there are massive Chinook fields yeah but uh, even then as with Today, most hops from the British Isles would be grown in the southwest of Britain, uh, in mm. the southwest of England, uh, um, Kent.
1: Why exactly are they also terrible? I quite like some of them, actually. I think
0: it's a pretty bold statement for someone wearing the t-shirt that you are. Oh no, you're not wearing. They it make a thing, better sorry. bittering Oops. hop than the, the Americans got to do with it.
2: <laughs> you're they a they make house. a nicer bittering hop than the Americans. That's true for for something like a stout or for something
1: that's not an IPA. British bitter I mean, hops. I, 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 I I can get behind some EKG. Foggle just has the worst name Target, of any hop ever. Northern Brewer. Uh, you know, most of the Northern Brewer on, on the market is actually German grown nowadays. Well, yeah, yeah um, but that was because they liked it so much they took it. Um, and
0: everyone likes the like German we're, we're the hops. hops. We're focusing on the bittering hops here, but you know, one of the unsung heroes is Bramling Cross. True, I'm, I'm I like Bram- that one big Bramling Cross. cross I like there. that one. Yeah. Okay,
1: so I. So
0: you know. Who are you heading a little bit? Mate? I just pulled in my statement then. <laughs>
2: uh, just going back then. Uh, so for kind of after the brewery's established. Uh, so he is, despite being quite middle class. So he's not from a, a wealthy background, really. Uh, there was a he middle is class at very, this time. Well, no, he he is what is the middle class? So he is Protestant, but he is Irish, which puts him in the middle class. <laughs> okay. If you're Catholic and Irish, you're at the bottom. If you're Protestant and English, you're at the top. He's got a couple um, of
0: steps up on the on the social hierarchy.
2: The the reason this bit is called the ascendancy is sort of, there is social mobility for people like him during this time period. Um, so he does quite well. He is very well connected. For example, okay. he is so back then, uh, especially the the early weirder flavors of Protestantism. They're big on all the fraternal societies and stuff. So he's in at least a dozen of these. Uh, Some of those
0: weird knights of the order of Illuminati. Yeah, so he's a member
2: of one called the Kildare Knot, which is mixed religion, but which is essentially um, prosperous farmers, rich middle class people. What about like skull and bones? Nothing like that, unfortunately. But uh, then, you know, ends up uh, head of the Dublin Brewers Association, Guild of
1: Brewers. That sounds like the skull and bones. Excuse me, I'm going to crack open a Yeah, I know, you were trying so
0: hard to do it really stealthily to make your way to the Guinness Original. I I grabbed it stealthily.
1: (laughs) You're so much shuffling. can
0: hear you rifling through your jacket looking for a bottle opener.
1: But, uh,
2: yeah, so he spends a, a large amount of his career where he actually owns the brewery, essentially, as head of the Brewer's Guild, arguing... With the city council and with the British government right. about the uh, excise rates. So if I remember right, there is a quote from one of his speeches where he's arguing that the number of breweries in Dublin has dropped uh, from over seventy to under thirty as a result of these laws in forty years. Yeah, um, it's not that big a loss, but uh, that and his his water dispute, which involves the pickaxe inc- incident, I quite like, uh, which essentially cons- he's using the same city w- water <laughs> the from incident. the river puddle as everybody else. Um, and he bought his water rights with the lease from the previous brewery owner Mm -hmm. Um, and at one point when the brewery grew expanded it resulting in an area of less than two metres certainly where the pipe went from the building to the river that he used to not be exposed, but when he exploded in the pipe, it was overland. Right. Uh, so the city council send people around to destroy his uh, excess water pipe, saying that he's stealing water. He says if it's part of the lease, it's okay. And they say, well, these two meters are outside of your leased area. God damn it. And they send guys around to destroy it, at which point he finds out they're there, grabs a pickaxe, and runs down to
1: confront them. So they is sent some tough... Bureaucrats. Some, some goons. Some bureaucratic goons. Mm-hmm.
2: He had already previously, in a more unclear circumstance, threatened excise inspectors with a hatchet. <laughs> that man is a loose cannon. Now, he also uh, sets up the first Sunday school in Dublin and is involved in a load of uh, Protestant charitable endeavours. So he's
1: kind of it. like the Elon Musk of his day. At once a massive dick, but also... Kind of benevolent at times? Sort of,
2: yeah. Um, and uh, in the generations after that, the family do keep this sort of uh, what would become the Christian socialists in the UK. Uh, British Protestant politics tended to split into um, either the, the really capitalist uh, poverty is how God punishes the Stupid and lazy, <laughs> or the really charitable uh, look at the poor. We what should all be doing things? something supply
0: to side help. Jesus.
2: Supply Jesus, personal
1: supply Jesus.
2: His family over several generations continues to come down on the sort of, oh no, we should be. You know, dignity for normal people is not a bad thing.
0: <laughs> oh Jesus, Larry!
2: That's good podcasting right there, <laughs> which was controversial. When he was saying it, you know, um, but he is then sort of very well connected, but not actually important. He's sort of rubbing shoulders. I mean, most of the fraternities are kind of like the equivalent of a uh, golf clubs in English business today. Yeah, mm-hmm. oh, you right, right. if you're the member of a, a nice exclusive golf club, hanging out with the MPs, well, you don't get to decide anything, but certainly at least you're rubbing, your rubbing shoulders, shoulders and, and elbows, yeah, Certain and knobs are great. probably. Um, and he does eventually partially succeed in getting most of the, the laws overturned. Uh, at the same time, he's also uh, pro the dissolution of the penal laws and mm-hmm. in favour of Catholic emancipation. But uh, he eventually gets them overturned in his role as head of the Brewer's Guild well enough that uh, they start exporting um, significantly to England early on mm-hmm. uh, for the, the London Taste Reporter. Um, But uh, starting in the very late 1700s, he begins experimenting on the shelf life of porters Mm -hmm. and uh, starts designing what will become the Tropical Porter. Mm -hmm. Um, So in 1801, I think two years before he dies, that is, uh, he releases the first uh, West Indies porter for sale in the Caribbean, uh, which is a tropical porter and which he had done by... uh, Increasing, so this is not yet a stout, so it is still hopped. So he's increased the hop content. Mm-hmm. He has doubled the amount of uh, roast and brown malt in it. Mm-hmm. And he has uh, increased the ABV. And also, because British porters were sour, they had to, to an extent deliberate bretonomyces in them. And so did his original porters. Right. Um, yeah. For the tropical one, it was brewed seasonally in the colder months to reduce acidification during the brewing and Mm -hmm. then aged for two years for stability before being exported. Okay, wow. Uh, So that's, 1801 is the first export of that to the Caribbean. Uh, 1817 to the US, 1827 to uh, Africa, and 1847 to Southeast Asia. So quite quickly, and this would have been his son, I think, Benjamin Guinness, who was also the guy who brought steam engines into the brewery, but couldn't find much more information about that other than he did it.
0: That's so unfortunate. That's that's actually one of the most interesting parts. R- related to that
2: is Guinness ran its own rail line through Dublin, uh, two separate rail lines through Dublin for... Oh, one wasn't enough. supplies and work for... It. One was narrow gauge and sort of moved stuff to the brewery from the countryside ingredients-wise, right. and the other was a uh, wide gauge one for bringing beer to the docks for export
0: how much like do we know anything about his steam being brought into the when you say steam engines do you mean a part of the the train uh, line, or so we mean like for early on
2: or... one of the reasons the puddle was the industrial area of dublin so all the steel mills textile mills are also along that Uh, So you're using water
1: power from that river. Mm -hmm. I'm I'm guessing since like uh, most major cities of the time, you know, all the... Say that, uh, you know, all this industry was set right next to the river puddle and they still used uh, the water also for brewing and and the main water source for most of Dublin, as you said. uh, I would imagine like places like tanneries and butcher shops, all of their like refuse also ran uh, ran off into the uh, puddle was is that the yes. secret to the water
2: uh, so it, it was surprisingly well regulated given that it had been the water source since the 1200s uh, so um firstly the once the city grew too much uh, a sluice system was put in place to divert river from a larger river uh, so the reason it is these two rivers is because they flow from the northwest through uh well, cleaner areas Mm-hmm. Um, then the Liffey which is the main river through Dublin uh, so they were kind of subdivided several times so I think he was using a specific underwater branch of it called the City Works right Um which flowed down to the pool, which is where the industrial runoff would have been going. Mm -hmm. But they are mostly using it for, this is before Benjamin brings in the steam, and Mm -hmm. before any of the, so they are using it literally for
1: water mills, is why they're all along the problem. Okay. So in any case, it was still a lot better regulated than let's say the Thames. Oh yeah. Which, um, which is a cesspool. Oh,
2: and this is the, the the Liffey is the Thames what? of Dublin, and that is the reason no one's using the Liffey for anything London except is a cesspool, transport is what I said. and uh, public urinal. Um, a, a fine condition that continues today, along with the retrieving caddies from the Liffey
0: from <laughs> <laughs> the shopping trolley.
2: Whenever the carts, summer is too dry, shopping. there is an amazing number of those in there.
1: <laughs> That's. That's only reasonable. Where else do I mean, like, park I think them?
0: that's like a problem in Melbourne as well. It's like one of the reasons you shouldn't dive in is because like the the very high likelihood that you will land on a, on a shopping trolley. Why?
1: Isn't that, uh, <laughs> what's the motivation here for? And that there are shopping so many and trolley shopping trolleys in there
0: that and It's a it's a danger.
1: Uh, you know, in Tallinn, we also in the city center we have. Uh, a body of water, which is the Baltic Sea. And uh, there's this, like, little maritime basin in the city center, which is right next to the biggest, uh, like, one of the biggest shopping malls in central Tallinn. I oh, there's thinking. there's a lot of shopping carts down in there. In Tallinn,
2: well. we have the what's the wee white robot that delivers your shopping
1: cart? Uh, Star- Star- Starship. Starship brought those robot. into Dublin it's, when it's the Liffy ran low. <laughs> it'd just be a lot of Starships people that tossed in there. It's a robot graveyard. There's a movie about it. It's called Wall-E. Resuming for, oh, I think the last <laughs> yeah, thing was you, you the, the West Indies Porter. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, anyway, by uh, 1849,
2: they renamed the West Indies Porter to the Foreign Extra State, which is a variety of Guinness available more or less everywhere except the Silver in Arsenal today. <laughs> uh, the shop I went looking for it in for the podcast. That is, yes. Yeah, so I think that's also the year they expand to Malaysia. Um, they then uh, eventually began making it into, so, and this is how it's done today, is they make uh, what they call the FES syrup in Dublin, which is essentially uh, a hopped dark wort, uh-huh. um, which I think has a big impact on the. So uh, like it's not made from a real mash. It is essentially a steeping of dark grains and hops to create a, a flavor extract which mm-hmm. is then shipped to various countries. Originally, it was made for Nigeria in '62. Today, there's nine Diageo-operated breweries that brew foreign extra stout all over the world using the FES syrup, do, and
1: 39 that do it under contract. Do they... Uh, so they get the syrup in, which is already the steep dark malts and the hops. Uh, do they still... Do the actual mashing of like, so the lighter grains. They do the p- mashing
2: of the lighter grains in and their then they own mix various countries. In. So uh, I know certainly in the Nigerian Guinness Brewery, which is the biggest outside of uh, Ireland, mm-hmm. uh, they use sorghum uh, as again a portion sorghum, of the yeah. base, base grain and i think the malaysian one did use rice i don't know if it still does but it was essentially here is going to syrup find a sugar or, or a starch
1: have locally have you had a chance to put any of these let's say the nigerian one up against the irish made one
2: uh i have tasted the nigerian so what one we're kind once of hoping to do today it was one of the things i was hoping to do today but the african shop is closed um Damn, we'll have to do yeah. this again. sometime. So, so this Africa uh,
0: does have a pretty steady supply of Nigerian Guinness. Actually, it's really which cool. yeah we That's would good have to at least um, get together
2: at some, of some point with the West Indies, the foreign extra, yeah. and the African foreign extra, just to see. But how instead, that we're
1: just sipping on some Guinness Original,
2: which isn't you know, much beerier than the draft one. It is, it's and a uh, portion of brown malt still left in it.
1: I just. You know, I don't know, maybe it's a thing of me being closer to my 40s and my 30s uh, today and it's like a little bit of an acquired taste, but roughly at the same time that I started enjoying my steak like medium or not below medium and like uh, even <laughs> yeah. I started finally enjoying Guinness. To me, Guinness up until... Fairly recently was still something that I would cook with, and I would sit next to people drinking it uh, and would, uh, quietly uh, judging you in guys in terms of
2: cooking with it. So uh, I would never cook with uh, the draft Guinness;
1: uh, always with Guinness Original. I've uh, cooked with the draft Guinness as well. There's a little bit of bitterness pickup, but depending on one what is, you uh, do, sweeter, more mouthfeel. Uh, you know, um, for some Estonian Christmas cabbage, uh, it actually works really well, Not the, also the draught. So if we did have the foreign extra
2: state, the main difference between it and the original is it has a deliberate, uh, like a large amount of diacetyl, which was originally in there to counteract the sourness that would happen just on extended shipping. Oh. Um uh there is a, as with the Guinness uses with Liffey water, uh, brews with Liffey water, um, there is a myth. Uh, so Guinness seems to do absolutely nothing to dispel this sort of thing. Quite often they seem to promote it. Certainly in the case of Guinness brews using Liffey water, they seem to have promoted that as a thing that makes it really dublin to sell it mm-hmm, to more Dubliners. Mm-hmm. Not that any effort was needed. Um <laughs> But uh, there is one that is... Is that, that because is you're
1: that all massive drunks? Eh, Tim was nodding. Uh,
2: sorry, I was accidentally nodding. I was saying no, but I was nodding. Um, Mixed signals here, buddy. But uh, so uh, there was a... A myth that the original FES syrup was in fact this kind of large uh fodder of Bretno written ridden bacterially infected just source liquor. Mm. Uh, sort of like a sourdough starter for Guinness. Um which probably isn't true according to uh I have
0: heard this. This is this is persistent because I've I've heard this for Australian Guinness that they they're like What is essentially an ICB of... Yeah, so it
2: seems to be a bit of confusion around the fact that... uh, So, Australia used to be the biggest market for export Guinness Mm -hmm. in between 1890-something and the 1920s, I think it was. Um, So, uh, all of the British beers back then were bretty. Um, there were, I mean, that's the the name Brettanomyces means the British yeast, and it was originally named that when they discovered it because uh, I think it was either French or Belgian beer scientists. Is it because it's so hard to get rid of? No, it's because <laughs> uh, all their beers were, according to the French, infected. Which um, is true. <laughs> which is great because, uh, of course, the the Belgians who are some of the guys who identified the British. Yeast uh, are the ones who make their beer with uh, Brettanomyces bruxellensis, the British yeast from Brussels.
1: <laughs> See, and then you have Brexit. How? Like, it doesn't make sense. Actually, Brexit does pop up briefly. <laughs> <laughs> of course it does. I love the five-second awkward silence in between, though. Uh, oh, I'm never
2: sure if you'd mention Brexit, but there are no... English people around, so I think it's. Within well, the we immediate can.
1: vicinity, we, we have like two British English <laughs> listeners. <laughs> you can listen to it on the so, uh, uh, until <laughs> I'm Brexit. going to go like hashtag Brexit than on this one.
2: <laughs> until Brexit, almost all Irish exports starting around two three hundred years ago were exported to either liverpool or northern wales shipped overland to southern england and then shipped a second time to europe from there Uh, brexit is actually the first time in about 300 years that's become economically less feasible than shipping things to the southwest of ireland and then shipping them to europe from there
1: see brexit
2: Which is not a bad thing for Ireland, actually, in terms of the shipping stuff. Uh, It's Northern Wales had towns that just existed on the basis of Irish trucks coming through, who
1: now have no trucks at all coming through. It's all very sad. So basically they're the Poland of the Isles. Just there for, like, trucks.
2: Wales? I would have called them the Lithuania of the Isles.
1: Why? <laughs> <laughs> We've offended the English. Everybody. The well, they're, Welsh they're kind of the, the Poles. The Lithuania with the Poland, get Any, any beef with the Lithuanians.
0: England. Oh okay. Yeah, re- I this, this is gonna really cause beef between everybody.
1: Though. I'm like out of yeah. all of those, I want the least beef with the Lithuanians. One of the things they I can they can be did the come contest. across in
2: some of the various research for this is a claim from the Welsh that uh Guinness copied his recipe from northern Welsh breweries. He may have briefly visited Wales, although no one can prove uh, like that one's not really been proven either way. But the Welsh were brewing something they called uh, black wine, um, which seems to have been a black Barty wine that had been soured or something like mm. that. Um, so there is one Welsh historian writing about 100 years ago who alleges that this is where Guinness was invented.
0: One Welsh historian.
1: It's a small country. Yeah, <laughs> the Welsh history. The Welsh history from a historian, historian years ago. when he had a break from his.
0: I'll go on wife Throw called Dolly. There it is. It was bound to come up at least once during this episode. Go on, go on, Tim.
2: Um, anyway, yeah. Uh, so when I was saying earlier, they are in a way a very British brewery. So all of that expansion I listed was notably to like British colonies for uh, originally for Irish soldiers in the British army um, and eventually spreading to just the British army and mm. then the locals in the various places they were exporting to but uh, so you do not really find industrial breweries before the 1700s it tends to be I mean when you look at where he starts brewing it is in kind of a local inn as the brew master yeah. So he kind of looks out a bit in that he starts a brewery kind of in the hundred years before industrial brewing really becomes a
1: thing. It was like brew pops only before, but then he went ahead and uh, started a proper brewery.
2: Yeah, or at least you were brewing to kind of supply the city you were in. Mm -hmm. Um, So he kind of looks out in that uh, in the next hundred years after that, uh, firstly, machinery arrives at, really allows you to scale up brewery secondly the british empire has expanded uh, significantly and the british empire is very much a an empire that makes its money by forcing you. Uh, this is the american no taxation without representation mm-hmm. uh, this was on the basis of the for example tea would have to be imported to the uk taxed once and then exported from it you couldn't go directly between two colonies mm-hmm. um So the softening of some of the trade restrictions on Ireland, combined with the expansion of the British Empire, and the rules that say that you kind of have to trade as one colony with other colonies, uh, all put him quite well-placed to expand. And then, as I meant, he comes from the Protestant descendancy background, so he's in the right social group during a time where there's upward social mobility for middle-class Protestants. So a lot of things just really fall in. Yeah, and he's in the right place in a time when the British Empire is expanding so that he can export it basically anywhere on Earth, uh, or to any of the non-antarctica continents
0: you're, you're noticing our map feel, feel free to make use of that because uh, it has I mean, come up several this times this is
2: one that I couldn't <laughs> verify but uh, I frequently heard it said that they're the first brewery to have a brewery on every continent bar South Africa uh, sorry, Antarctica uh, i was looking at south africa quite i said oh but so they're there are, the there brew dog those, of their time
1: there
0: are those guinness kegs that made it to antarctica and got turned exactly our
1: episode they're, on the antarctic homebrew ban uh the brew kits that bob described they're made out of guinness kegs
0: guinness kegs so there you go that that gives them antarctica just like guinness gave us antarctica on that we we ticked off that podcast
2: but uh i'll try to yeah. run through this next but quickly because it's not too relevant to Guinness itself but it's important for the two bits afterwards uh, so over the next kind of hundred years or so um, you have the end of the penal laws which they had supported so it's kind of a political win by then the family is quite important and they had thrown their weight behind uh, the end of the Catholic penal laws or the end of some of them uh, I think they actually last from like 1690 something to 1932 in mm-hmm. some way or other and um, mm-hmm. At the same time, uh, in the middle of the 18th century, there is the uh, Great Famine in Ireland, which pushes a lot of the population into Dublin, where there might be food, and helps them industrialise, so the workforce massively expands, and uh, you're also seeing at the same time, partly because of the famine, the end of Ireland being the main food supplier to the UK. So before and during the famine, I think it's something like 70% of pork, 80% of beef eaten in England is coming from Ireland. Afterwards, uh, a huge number of farmers have either died, moved to the US or the UK, or ended up in Dublin, where they're now going to take factory jobs. Um, So there's a surplus of industrial labor at the same time as the main Irish export food to the UK has massively reduced. And this kind of leads us into the lockout and the blacklist.
1: You know what? Um, Uh, I'm so glad we had a conversation a couple of days ago before we got together to record the episode because it has taken me literally everything about myself, not to make any potato jokes here.
0: Yeah, um, I mean, you still managed to mention it
1: though. You, I mentioned go. it, but I didn't make any there. jokes, and we well, agreed with Tim that I wouldn't. You wouldn't.
0: Well, good job, Larry.
1: I am You'd proud keep, of myself. Keep it up. High five me. <laughs> but, uh,
2: yeah, so by the early 1900s, which is the run up to uh, the lockout and the blacklist, um, Dublin is quickly industrialised but massively overpopulated. Um, I think one in three children born at a time will die in infancy. I remember, right, in the census for my own family from nineteen eleven or twelve, I think is the earliest one we have. Uh, my great grandmother is living in a building with uh, eight hundred and thirty-two other people. Oh, and wow. these are—I mean, if you've been to the UK, these are standard-sized tenements. This is just mm. the inner city, long, narrow building,
1: um, not like twenty-six stories or anything. It's no,
2: no, uh, three to four stories high quite narrow 20 apartments probably something like that yeah sort of generally today they're divided into about uh 10 to 15 apartments Mm -hmm. so i lived in a couple in edmund for example uh which had yeah 12 apartments in them uh but yeah at the time six to eight hundred residents seems pretty normal one of the things in the run-up to the lockout uh, was that uh, a tenement that had not originally been built next to a train line the train line had been built long after it had collapsed, killing about 900 of the residents who'd been complaining that every time a train drove by the entire the house building shakes. shook for mm. a good while Anyway, uh, they got the human tragedy checked off Yep, it's, yeah. it's happened Oh, it's going to get worse um it often does. So uh, by 1913 what's happened uh, so beginning 1911 in the UK you've a period called the the great unrest in labor relations which is basically where we get sort of a minimum wages working weeks mm. uh, less child labor um yeah, more child labor will have industrial- to wage
0: Union movement, yeah, and uh, this, th- this
2: is going on in the UK. And uh, as was so often the case, while Britain ruled Ireland, is kind of skipping us by. Um, and in the early 1900s, two particular figures, uh, James Conley, who is born to Irish parents in Edinburgh, right next to a pub called Finnegan's Wake, that I used to go to. There's a little <laughs> plaque in the smoking area of the pub that says, This is the birthplace of James Conley. Um, And the other one is Jim Larkin, who I forget if he was born to Irish parents in Liverpool or if he was born in Ireland and lived in Liverpool. But so they've both had a a history working in the UK and getting involved in trade unions in the UK. After moderate success over there, they moved to Ireland Mm -hmm. um, and set about trying to kind of bring the labour laws to the same place the UKs are. James Connolly, in particular, actually does quite well in Northern Ireland in that he manages to organise strikes where Protestant and Catholic unions work together, which, if you know anything at all about Northern Ireland... Uh, that, that isn't, that's isn't really not to how too that too works. Often, um, eventually, uh, he kicks up a bit of a fuss up there and is more or less run out of town and ends up in Dublin. And in 1913, organises a, a mass general strike of his union, uh, the... Irish Transport and General Workers' Union, uh, which will go on for about five months. Um, About 20,000 workers are involved. Uh, Casualties for the workers consists of two documented dead on the workers' side with an unknown number more and uh, 200 dead police on the other side. Oh, Jesus. Um, But, like I said, that really depends on the fact that only two of the strikers' deaths are actually recorded. Recorded. Um, Certainly, there was an English union that, in the middle of the five-month strike, ran a programme to take the children of strikers out of Ireland before they starved to death so that they could go and live with a nice trade union-y house in England. Food was back. Guinness has quite a, essentially,
1: benevolent Wait, did they ever get their children back, though? Probably. Probably. Mostly. English. No. But uh,
2: Guinness is odd in that um, partly it is one of the only large uh, companies in Dublin that is already partly unionized by actually the uh, ITGW workers. So there are 400 already unionized workers at Guinness that are part of this union that don't come out in strike to the same extent as other workers in the union. Um, nor do most so most of these strikers were sympathy strikers like it was mm-hmm. a general strike so uh, the uh, two unions went or two or three unions went on strike and most of Dublin just kind of joined in um, Guinness had quite a low strike turnout many people just going, uh, continued going to work so at the time for example they had pensions where other workers didn't um, like Guinness had quite a, just had been treating their employees quite well and uh, hadn't taken any action against the unionization of their workers so far. They did ban sympathy strikers at Guinness. Right. So you were allowed to strike if you were a member of a striking union and you worked for Guinness, but not if you weren't a member of a union that was on strike. Huh. Um, more importantly, they didn't blacklist. And this was the main fallout of the strikes, were so the no, blacklist.
1: 45 minutes into it, Tim said the blacklist. The blacklist.
2: So the the blacklist is the consequence of the strike and it sort of directly triggers a rebellion in Ireland Mm -hmm. from... So it provides a lot of the impetus to the next rebellion, which will be in 1916. Uh, So essentially many of the blacklisted workers, uh, many of the striking workers were blacklisted, meaning that you did not find work again in Dublin full stop. Mm -hmm. Uh, So my... I think it's two greats. Great-great-grandfather was one of the striking workers who was blacklisted. He was a house painter, actually. And, uh, yeah, he did not work in between 1913 and his death
1: in the rebellion in 1916. It just got a, like, question. Uh, the band Red House Painters, uh, are these all socialist, unionist uh, house painters that it's got blacklisted? Blacklisted.
0: I don't know. This is one of your music facts. I don't even
2: know this band.
1: And also the red chili peppers. Are they communist? Those
2: are communist peppers.
1: Communist peppers Sexy from California. communist peppers.
2: Uh, so anyway, yeah, the lockout results in the blacklist. Um, if you're blacklisted, that's the end of work in Ireland for you. Full stop. Um a good portion of the blacklisted will end up dying in the 1916 Easter Rising as members of the ICA, which is formed as a direct result of the lockout. That's the Irish Citizen Army. It was formed to defend strikers from the police. Mm-hmm. And it ends up merging with the, the Irish Republican Brotherhood and the Irish Volunteers to form the original IRA. So it's like that. The the, that pre IRA. Yeah, uh, the pre IRA. So uh, a large part of them actually would become the Irish Defence Forces mm-hmm. when. They won their war, but uh, so the Irish Citizen Army sort of was the the socialist or the leftist political grouping within what would become the IRA. Mo- the other two groups, one of them was very much the, the farmer based Catholic, uh, bring back Gaelic Ireland or Gaelic speaking Ireland. How expensive
1: were their horses?
2: Less than five pound, presumably. But uh, and the other about maybe a third of the blacklisted. Um, will find one employment opportunity before the rising in 1916 which is to join the British army in 1914 um, oh so actually the brother of the William McDowell who was blacklisted in the lockout ended up in the British army which is why we didn't know he existed till like 3-4 years That's ago some hypocrisy
0: why? I'm
2: hiring them <laughs> well, the, yeah, the, yeah, the yeah, Army know, clearly it's... wasn't one of the blacklisting companies <clears> uh, <throat> like Guinness. I'm sorry. Um, name what Guinness and the British Army have in common. Which like brings exactly. us nicely to World War II. Oh, nice. So the, like I said, the, the lockout really cemented the place. So like my great-grandmother would say things to, you know, it's a, it's a good Republican beer. So the lockout really cemented their place as being kind of the people's beer in mm-hmm. Dublin. Um, but uh, World the War II... The national
0: symbol of Ireland. Yeah.
2: World War II really illustrates their uh, well, power and importance. Um, mm. So I think Larry was just mentioning what a portion of the Irish economy This Guinness, was during, during the uh, quick uh, yeah. last break, but uh, yeah No, we don't know, the neither of us knew the exact number but they were a huge portion of the export economy for at least 150 years I remember something the like uh,
1: 26 or 36% of like the, the GDP being that made up by one it would not company. surprise me during
2: the later British Empire when they're going to every, so, I, I so I was think just they're, like, at one point they're doing 100,000 hogsheads a year to uh, specifically Jamaica, they don't have numbers for
1: the rest of the Caribbean. I was just poking at Tim by saying, like, uh, would you say that? Well, actually, the empire was the best thing ever happening to Ireland because, well, your GDP was pretty decent off of the sales of one company's beers. It's a
0: controversial way. Of uh, it also, yeah. ignores
2: whiskey, which was an equally important bit mm. of yeah, the economy. But, but I mean, if your uh, economy stands on, stands on the, the famine, back of a brewery and some whiskey. Exported then boom, and t- Huge amounts of whiskey. Yeah. Uh, like if you converted the whiskey into grain during the famine, we exported like kilos of grain per person in the country per day in whiskey. To what if the you UK. converted the uh, potatoes into whiskey? Uh, then it would be poaching, not whiskey. Um,
1: <laughs>
2: <laughs> but uh, now, so, uh, World War Two. I think if uh, the lockout really cements Guinness's place as the drink of true Dubliners. Um, then World War II and Guinness really demonstrate how important it was to the Irish economy and, uh, well, not just the Irish economy, how powerful it was uh, as a company. So at the start of World War II, Ireland got independence in 1921, sort of. Uh, We got upgraded to Australia status, Dominion, in 1921, uh, which caused a civil war because being a member of parliament, in the Irish Free State, required an oath of loyalty to the Crown of Britain. And since a lot of the guys who'd just won the War of Independence had fought against the Crown of Britain, that was a bit of a sticking point, which is where the IRA splits into a terrorist organisation and the official army of the modern state of the Republic of Ireland. Um, From then on stuff was alright for like 10, 15 years and then when the British were preoccupied elsewhere with the whole World War Two is coming thing mm-hmm. our Prime Minister declared us a republic I think that's the 30s anyway this immediately triggers a retaliatory uh, trade war the intensity of which varies for kind of 40 or 50 years sometimes it's quite bad, sometimes it's barely there at all um, Is Guinness exempt
1: from like no, a lot of
2: it? No, no. Um, but it mostly go at the time we we're much more heavily reliant on British imports. Mm-hmm, for, uh, mm-hmm. So again, part of the when the British took over India, India was the world's largest producer of cloth. When the British had had it for a hundred years, it was a net importer of cloth made in Britain. Mm-hmm. Part of the way the British Empire worked yeah, was yeah. putting all the factories in England and making everyone else buy back their own stuff after it was processed with the start of world war 1 uh sorry world war 2 ireland remains neutral In ireland it is frequently referred to at the time as the emergency
1: um, aha i love the way you guys uh name your de- de- uh, emergency. the, troubles, oh, the, the troubles. emergency troubles the troubles the puddle um, <laughs> exactly
2: <laughs> but uh i mean one of our rebellions is called the silken thomas rebellion entirely unrelated to this now just another thing we named weirdly um That's-
1: Silk, Silken Thomas. Silken Thomas. Uh,
2: he's one of the Earls of Kildare who starts a rebellion and uh, had his soldiers wear like a piece of silk in their hat, so they knew uh, who they silk. were or something. Like will, that.
1: Will, uh, my mind initially already went to like, okay, this guy was like a big importer of silk, but uh, it was. In, um, oh, well, that would so have had he to come he from he England. Imported under the uh, in Thomas. Yep.
0: Yeah.
2: <laughs> But uh, anyway, so uh, part of the initial establishment of the Free, Straight, uh, Free State included something called Treaty Ports, which were right from the beginning controversial in that uh, the British Army was allowed to hold on to essentially strategic bits of the country because mm-hmm. um, they were important to Britain. Shortly before World War Two, they managed to get them out of the Treaty Ports. And at the beginning of World War Two what Churchill uh, really wanted was access to the treaty ports to put British troops in again. Mm -hmm. And given that if you control the treaty ports, so it means that you control the import and export to Ireland, you control the movement of everything important in and out of Ireland, and they're the strategically important bits, getting them out was considered at the time a great success for a more independent Ireland. So inviting them back in just because they were at war with the Germans to the places we had just managed to kick them out of was cons- would have been, A, incredibly unpopular, but also just considered a bad move
1: at the time. I, I feel like we're <clears> about <throat> 20 seconds of Tim going unchecked before he starts like laying out the proper way to do, do trade war. And then <laughs> the next stop is like uh, how a, a trade war could have saved mainland Europe from the Napoleonic Wars. And... Like, going oh, back the, to the napoleonic the
2: napoleon's european system was a trade war actually but uh, anyway um, <laughs> so don't start don't <laughs> i'm sorry so uh, anyway the, they the irish cons- essentially the british immediately say even if you're neutral you'll you let us use you know we're allowed troops in mm-hmm. your mm-hmm. towns mm-hmm. and ships in uh, no absolutely not that's precisely the thing we'd if we thought being part of the allies was just irish people will go and fight elsewhere they do that all the time <laughs> um no it's the british the troops into so ireland that is the really <laughs> the sticking point um anyway correspondingly the trade war kind of moves from a, a sporadic trade war of minimal intensity to a full-on embargo uh specifically by 1941 uh, no imports are coming from England any more of uh, fertilizer, coal, petrol, etc. Mm-hmm. Um, which, creating massive problems. In fact, uh, you do have in 1941 a British journalist posted to Dublin who sends back telegrams giving them updates on the status, one of which includes, No coal, stop. No petrol, stop. No gas, stop. No electric, stop. No paraffin, stop. Guinness
1: good. Stop. <laughs> <laughs> that's that's a lovely, like reassuring <laughs> telegram. Actually, yeah. like everything is pretty messed up, but at but least we've still got Guinness. We still yes, have, I'm Sat Guinness. in the dark, drinking a pint, but at least I'm not just sat in the dark. The biggest issue there, to me, is the fact that it's such a dark beer. So in the dark, it's kind of hard to pour, and you'd never know when and you could to, be like, stop. water for all you know. <laughs> exactly. Um,
2: but uh, so by 1942, the restrictions, the particularly on grain, have gotten bad enough that uh, the F word may come up. Uh, the F word here being famine, and the Irish government and
1: Irish people are terrified of famine since mm. the whole the famine famine. Um, is, there a, is there a cute name for that as well in Irish, like the Hungries uh,
2: and Gortemore, the Great Hunger?
1: Oh, I thought this um, like the Hungries.
2: But, uh, yeah, no, it is starting to, to reach famine prices in Dublin, uh, especially for bread without wheat imports, uh, by 1942. So the Irish government, to try and uh, reduce the price of bread, uh, put strict limits on the amount of grain that can be moulded. Can
1: I really quickly ask... Uh, Wheat is not really a super common like uh, crop that you guys grow, right?
2: No. So traditionally, it's and brine,
1: oats right? and barley. Oats were and bigger. barley. Uh,
2: I think the climate is generally too damp for rye. You'd end mm-hmm. up with the ergot fungus, which is another good. Rabbit hole to dive Uh, into, and you um, might see some rabbit holes. But so, by and large, uh, traditionally it had been oats, um, Mm -hmm. but beyond that, there was never, at least in in Gaelic Ireland, there was a a large amount of pastoral farming rather Mm -hmm. than grain growing. By the time of the famine, one of the problems that caused uh, the Great Famine, not the World War II, not a famine, was that um, the peckish, because the potato. Yield so much more produce per small area of land. Sure. Uh, people would be growing sort of 80 to 90% of their land as grain, which was to pay your rent in, to sell to England, and 10% for potatoes, which could still feed an entire family. So the grain growth was never really for, it was for export. mm mm-hmm. um, mm-hmm. But so yeah, but, but you would still two. import all the grain for the
1: whiskey then, or?
2: Uh, so I mean, again, that's barley. Um, sure. So wheat barley was never grain. grown to stay in the country. Really, sure. it was almost always for export. Uh, barley was grown more uh, along the east and the north, which is where most of the distilleries are um the west tends to be too mountainous for much more than uh sheep and cattle uh, or too boggy anyway uh, it's just generally not good in one direction yeah. or the other mm-hmm. uh, so it's usually been so kind of potatoes replaced oats to an extent if okay you uh, oats were the traditional i mean i'll take potatoes oats oats any day. and bad country crop so in
1: scotland the, the oat continued uh, longer. At the same time, it's so much harder to like go and spread your white potatoes. <laughs>
2: <laughs> oh. But uh, yeah, now so by 1942, the restrictions on the amount of Irish grain that can be malted uh, in order to keep uh, bread price down is becoming a problem for Guinness, which. Would have been it. Guinness would have had a bad time of it, except that at the time the population of Northern Ireland was uh, between ten to fifteen percent. U.S. and U.K. forces waiting mm. to either travel onward to England mm-hmm, or mm-hmm. training for D-Day or uh, any of the variety and Guinness of things was making. They bank, could be up to? I'm guessing. So in uh, yeah, late 1942. London receives reports of what's described as an acute beer shortage in Northern Ireland, oh, no. creating morale and discipline problems for the British and American forces. Right. And those poor yeah. people will um, have to resort to drinking sorry, wine. No, that's in March, um, so early 1942. They complain to the Irish government and the Guinness, who respond with, well, this whole not selling a sweet thing is really damaging her ability to produce beer. So they agree to end the wheat embargo, but nothing else, uh, as long as the troops in Northern Ireland get beer. Mm. But this is still
1: mostly Guinness, right? That is all Guinness.
2: Uh, at, uh, At this point, Guinness and the... So Guinness was known to be quite protectionist. The Irish government did not like the company at the time. So it is not the Irish government that negotiated the end to the wheat embargo. It it's is Guinness, Guinness, Guinness who responded to the why is there no Guinness with because there is no wheat being exported. There is uh, absolutely no wheat in this, though. Well, not in that one. No, but uh, since we did grow barley in the absence of wheat imports with the price of bread yeah, rising. It's why the Reinheitsgebot came to be mm-hmm. uh, just to protect your surplus but- barley. So, that was 1942 that uh, Guinness managed to negotiate the end of an embargo of wheat imports to the Republic of Ireland. Between 19 four, late, late 1942 and 44, Guinness has done the same for uh, coal, fertilizer, grain, agricultural machinery, and uh, non-wheat growing equipment. Uh, Grains? no it was malting not agricultural it was malting equipment for ah, our, right, right, anyway right. um but is each of those is uh, and all of them follow exactly the same pattern it's not guinness ask and then it happened nor the irish Go- the irish government might ask or guinness would stop selling beer mm-hmm. uh, so at one point the irish government did take the role of guinness in that they banned beer exports but i think out of the four or five times that this happened once the irish government was the one banning beer exports the other four times, Guinness itself did the, without coal, we can't make beer, and you guys have embargoed us from coal. Mm-hmm. Which, I mean, yeah, no, does demonstrate, uh, when we're saying, the, the portion of, not well, not even the portion of the Irish economy that they represent, but rather the uh, importance of their beer production to the UK at the time. Not many breweries can blackmail a nation. I mean, uh, A.B. InBev probably owns a few nations. I I I mean, um, I was going to say, what about Budweiser? But what I'm thinking of there isn't actually Budweiser blackmailing Brazil. It's FIFA blackmailing Brazil on
1: Budweiser's behalf. Or, uh, well, Qatar fucking over uh, Budweiser.
0: Which I'm sure is going to pop up at some point. Oh, it most
1: certainly will. Sounds like one of our things. So, Tim, do you have anything you want to add to the fascinating history of Guinness? Uh, not particularly, but like I, said, I did kind of pick them
2: because, I, like I said, it starts firstly very Protestant, which at the time means British, and follows through sort of the, the British Empire's expansion. So, uh, I think the last specifically instance, like the lockout and its history of labour, are, are the reason it has become such an Irish product. You can find, to an extent, other Irish businesses that existed before independence and that would stop being Irish after. So, nothing, nobody particularly wealthy was viewed as Irish in Mm -hmm. Ireland during British rule. That uh, to be wealthy meant Englishness or Britishness. I hear you. So they've done actually kind of a fantastic job on turning that around and making themselves the most Irish of Irish things.